Take your Bibles, go to Acts chapter 3, please. My hope is that we'll learn what it means to be a church in action. And that's not to say we're not a church in action, but I think there are probably areas we can improve on. There are certainly areas we can strengthen. And so that's the hope as we go through these thoughts through the book of Acts. In chapter 3, we have the account of the crippled beggar who is healed by the power of God, which is through Peter and John. They're the conduits, but God is the healer. And then Peter's sermon here to the crowd who is gathering around to see this miracle that has taken place of this man being healed. And they're at the temple, and where Peter preaches is at Solomon's porch. Let's read verses 12 through 26 tonight of Acts chapter 3. The Bible says, And when Peter saw it, speaking of the crowd gathering around, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this, or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of the restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Amen and amen. So we saw in verse 12 how Peter directed all the attention away from him and John so that in verse 13 he can direct all the attention to God where it belongs. And in this we considered how none of what we do as a church is about us, but it is all about God. We are not to get or seek for the glory because God is the one who deserves it. And last time we saw in verse 13 that when Peter directs their attention Godward, he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. So there is a definite appeal here to the children of Israel. We saw in verse 25 how they are called the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with the fathers. The covenant was the promised seed of Christ to come one day, and through Him all families of the earth 
could be blessed. He would be a deliverer to all people. He'd be a blessing to all people. And as Peter draws their attention to God by speaking of the God of their fathers, he then says how this same God hath glorified His Son, Jesus. And when we take verse 13 and verse 25 together, ultimately what Peter is getting at is how Jesus is the one who confirmed the covenant made to the fathers. Now because we understand these truths in our day, it may not seem like a big deal when we read accounts like this. But remember, this was still a very controversial message in first century Judea. We don't always grasp the magnitude of what Peter is saying here in chapters 2 and 3, and later on even, in our modern American Christianity mindset. But Peter is boldly proclaiming that Jesus was and is the Christ. Remember that the crucifixion and talk of Jesus' resurrection is still fresh. We're maybe two months here. Maybe a little bit more, we don't know for sure, but... We're not far from the events of the crucifixion. And so this is all still very fresh in everyone's mind. And it's controversial. It's dangerous to preach this. We're going to see that in the next chapter when they're arrested for what Peter is preaching here. But the council didn't all of a sudden become more friendly to believers because somebody said Jesus rose again. They still don't like the believers. So I hope you understand, and I know I said this last time, I'm just recapping here, but I hope you understand the significance of what Peter is preaching here. This is not an easy thing for him to preach. And it's easy in the sense that he was walking with God, but it's going to be harmful in the sense that physically it's going to cause them some problems. And that's what a church in action does. We preach truth. It may not be that we want to do it, it may not be that it's going to be pleasant to do it, but... We give the Word of God. We give the truth of God's Word, no matter the consequences, because people need truth. What's the point if we're just going to sugarcoat things? Now, I'm not saying to be ugly and beat people over the head, but we do have to be uh, honest with the Word of God, and we have to give the truth of God's Word. Whether they want to hear that or not, we are to proclaim the gospel to every creature. Now, as we continue tonight in verses 13 through 15, we see how Peter presses their sin of denying Christ upon them. Now, these early preachers, they always stressed that the crucifixion of Christ, or the crucifixion of Jesus, as the Pharisees would say, because they didn't believe He was the Messiah, they would always press that the crucifixion of Jesus was the greatest crime committed in all of human history. And it is. It is. Now, we understand God was working out salvation. But when we think about who Jesus was and what happened to Him, this is the greatest crime that's ever happened. And so Jesus, remember, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. He was sinless. He was perfect. He spoke truth. He only went about doing good. But they hated Him. And they wanted Him dead. They accused Him of having a devil. They accused Him of being crazy. They accused him of being born illegitimately. They accused him of being a wine-bibber and a glutton. They accused him of performing miracles by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of devils. They accused him of blasphemy. And as a result, Peter here reminds them 
how they are the ones who delivered Jesus over to Pilate, who was the Roman governor. And Peter reminds them how they denied Jesus before Pilate, even though Pilate was of the mindset to let Jesus go free, having found no fault in him. But when given the chance to let Jesus go free, instead of choosing an innocent man, they chose a man in Barabbas who was a seditionist and a murderer. They chose him to be set free instead of the Holy One and the just. Now they should have recognized Jesus as the Christ. They should have received Him and loved Him, but they rejected Him and hated Him. And the contrast is no different today. You either receive Him and love Him, or you hate Him and reject Him. And when Peter refers to Jesus as the Holy One, in verse 14, the religious Jews would have understood this as a reference to the Old Testament. It is a phrase that you'll find a lot in the Old Testament. You'll find it most in the writings of Isaiah. But it is a name of Christ in the Old Testament. And it is often said as the Holy One of Israel. For example, Isaiah 29, verses 17 through 19. Is it not yet a very little while, and Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest? And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor, um, the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 43, 15. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Isaiah 47, 4. As for our Redeemer... The Lord of hosts is His name, the Holy One of Israel. And so what Peter is doing is he's further connecting Jesus to God. And in fact, he is declaring that Christ was God in the flesh. And Peter not only calls Jesus the Holy One, but he refers to Jesus as the just, which means that He was the innocent one. The council wanted Jesus dead for blasphemy, but since they didn't have a governmental system in place being under Roman control, they couldn't put someone to death without having them go before the Romans. And that's why they delivered him to Pilate. But the Romans, they're not going to kill a man because he blasphemed in the Judean religion, in Judaism. They don't care. That's not going to be enough to put somebody to death. So when Jesus is brought before the Romans, now those who took Him before Pilate have to change the charge from blasphemy to sedition. And say, this man is trying to tell people that Caesar's not in control. In fact, this is what they say in Luke 23, verses 1 and 2. And the whole multitude of them arose and led Him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse Him, saying... We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. (laughs) Amen. Well, he was. But anyway. Now, of course, any charges that are brought against Christ are unfounded. They cannot be proven because he's sinless. So he could not be proven to be guilty of blasphemy. It could not be proven that he was guilty of sedition because he was the innocent one. He was the just one. And they could never show that he was unjust. 
Amen. Now, it's interesting to me how people have all kind of accusations against Christ that they can't prove. Even today. Well, I know, I know God just doesn't love me. Where'd you get that from? Didn't he die for you? Well, I know, I know God's just against me. Where are you getting? Okay, anyway. Um, and so what's happening here is that they can't show he's unjust. And as a result, it further aggravates the seriousness of their crime against Jesus in them demanding his death. And in verse 15, Peter drives home his point by declaring how they killed the prince of life. Jesus is not only the prince of life, but he is life. In fact, the word prince here means author. You'll also see it translated as captain of our salvation. So he is the author of life. John 1.4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 5.26, for as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. John 14.6, Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto me, or come unto the Father, but by me. So Peter is giving them the clear contrast of their choice. And I think it's important we draw that out of this account. While Jesus offered them life and came to bring them life, they chose someone who took life and they demanded the death of life itself. Instead of choosing life, they chose Barabbas. And, and I bring this up to tell you this. This is what we ought to be doing when we're witnessing to people. We ought to be giving them the contrast of their choice. Because you can choose death or you can choose life. It's up to you on how you receive Christ. They choose death if they reject Christ. They choose life if they receive Christ. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. And when we're witnessing to people, that's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be leaving that conversation, letting them know if you reject Christ, you're choosing death. Amen. I mean, that's what I did all the time in the military. Did it get you friends? No. But at the end of that conversation, I'm going to let you know, you have a choice to make. You can choose life or you can choose death. You see, you've got to give them the contrast of the two. Peter, he's attempting to get people to see that it was their sinful decisions which caused Jesus to go to the cross. And that's what we're trying to do to people. We're trying to get them to understand and confront people with Christ to let them know it is your sin that caused Jesus to go to the cross. I want you to understand, we're not trying to win them to a church. Okay? We're not trying to convince them of how they can experience a better life. We're not trying to convince them that they would really enjoy heaven. We're not trying to convince them that they're making a good decision by switching to Christianity. They're not saving 15% in 15 minutes. But see, that's how it's often portrayed. This would be a really good thing for you. You'll have a better life. You'll really enjoy heaven and, and things are just going to start working out for you. And we end up trying to make a deal with people to get them to come to Christ instead of letting them know the true contrast of the decision that they're making, it is heaven or hell. And we've got to be honest about those things. And so we want to convince people of their crimes against a holy God. 
We want them to see that they are hell-deserving sinners. Listen, if you didn't go, go to Christ to be saved from your sins, then what did you go to Christ for? You say, well, somebody told me if I came forward and prayed, I could go to heaven. Great. But did you ever recognize you were a sinner? Boy, you sound pretty serious about that. I'll tell you why, because I was that guy. I was that guy at the age of seven. I raised my hand and they said, you need to come down. I went to a back room, this was during VBS, and they led me through a prayer and they said, you're saved. I was that guy at the age of 10 who decided I didn't want to go to hell, but heaven would be a lot better experience than hell. But it wasn't until at the age of 12 at Jekyll Island, Georgia, when God said, salvation is about knowing me. And then I realized salvation is in a person, not in a place. Now, I'm not against anybody. Listen, if you got saved because hell's a nasty place, Jude does say others save with fear. We can talk about that later. But what I'm trying to tell you is it's only because of Christ that you could even have that decision. And so we just got to recognize our sinfulness. And that's what we're trying to get people to see. As Peter here is laying this out to them, he's letting them know, you're the reason why, because you are a sinner. That's why Christ died. He died for you and I because we're sinners. Now, before I go further, I just want to quickly address who actually killed Jesus. Peter says, they killed the prince of life. Stephen says, they were the betrayers and murderers of Jesus. And Paul says, they killed the Lord Jesus. Jesus even said that they had the greater sin because they were the ones who delivered Him to Pilate. And yet, no one from Israel scourged Him. No one from Israel nailed Him to the cross, and yet blame is laid at their feet because they are the ones who rejected their Messiah and gave Him over to be crucified. So in an earthly judicial sense, they are guilty of the death of Jesus. But if Israel didn't actually scourge or nail Him to a cross, then are we to blame the Romans since they are the ones who actually scourged and nailed Him to the cross? The answer is neither Israel nor Rome truly killed Jesus Because ultimately, we understand the Bible to teach that no man can take Jesus' life. The Bible says in John 10, 17 through 18, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. And so God may have used Israel and Rome to fulfill His purposes, but neither nation was capable of killing Jesus on their own. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 26, verses 53 and 54. Thinkest thou not that I cannot now pray to my Father, and He shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? Jesus possessed and He still possesses the power to destroy any that He pleases. No man could take Him by force without Him allowing it. So who actually killed Jesus? I said it this morning. I didn't realize how these were going to go together when I was studying. But God did. Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He was smitten of God. No wonder Jesus cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Romans 8.32, it says, He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. Now, if you would allow that truth to sink in, into your heart and into your minds, it will deepen your walk with God. 
Because you were a sinner who could not save yourself. But God the Father not only sent God the Son to die in your place, but God would kill His own Son that we might be given life. What love! 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 5, 8, But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I have three sons. I couldn't imagine taking one of them and killing them as the punishment and payment for your wickedness just so you could go free. But that's exactly what God did. Ephesians 3, 17-19, That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. And so what the Bible teaches us there in Ephesians is that if we would get a hold of the love of God that He has for us in Christ dying for us, then we will be filled with the fullness of God. You see, until you grasp who you really were before Christ, your walk with the Lord isn't going to be where it needs to get to. Because somewhere in the back of your mind, you're still thinking, I really was pretty good. I mean, I was raised in an independent Baptist church. I've only used a King James Bible. Wear a white shirt on Sunday. <laughs> All these silly things. But, but listen, when you realize why God did what He did, you'll understand just how you are hopeless without Christ. And when you realize that, your Christianity begins to change because you realize you are, you are nothing without Him. And you become more grateful And you'll end up serving God out of a grateful heart. And you'll offer your body as a living sacrifice to Him. And it is through the crucifixion of the Holy One, the innocent one, that we are to learn just how terrible sin really is to God. I think sometimes we just grow too comfortable with sin. Well, I've been trying to get victory and it's just not happening and whatever. You know, I've already thought it, I might as well do it. I just need to relax a little bit. And we become so indifferent to sin, and yet sin is the very reason why Jesus Christ was tortured for you and I. It's the very reason that God would send His only begotten Son to die for us because of sin, and yet we just kind of wink at it. Or we think, well, maybe it's not as bad as that guy. We need to understand how terrible sin is to our God. God hates sin enough that He would sacrifice Jesus. I'm afraid we don't often see how ugly and how damaging our sin really is before God. That's why people can fornicate and not think twice about it. That's why we can look at things we shouldn't look at on the internet. That's why we can say things that we shouldn't say. We think we're just bold. Well, if i got a problem with you, I'm going to let you know. Why? Because you're a jerk? (laughs) Not understanding, we're sinning. It's nasty. It's ugly before God. 
And if we would truly understand the depth of our depravity and the emptiness of our flesh, it might change our Christianity. Now, Peter, after pressing upon them the crucifixion being the greatest crime in human history, these early preachers also would stress the vindication of the resurrection. Peter says, whereof we are witnesses of this resurrection. In verse 15, in the middle there, it says, whom God hath raised from the dead. You see, these, these folks saw the risen Lord. They, they saw Jesus after He had been put into a grave and a stone had been rolled in front of the tomb. They saw Jesus. Paul even wrote that over 500 people saw Christ at once. Psalm 16.10 says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That's a passage speaking of the resurrection of Christ. And, and this is the great question concerning Jesus. Did He rise again from the dead? That's the question you have to answer. And how one answers that question biblically is going to determine if they have biblical salvation. You see, the physical children of Abraham as a whole, the Israelites and the Ishmaelites, who primarily make up Judaism and Islam, they have denied Christ's resurrection, therefore neither have salvation. You see, one must believe in the resurrection of Christ if there is to be salvation through Christ. It's the same as the virgin birth. You don't have Christ without the virgin birth. You don't have Christ without the resurrection. Without the resurrection, Jesus is just another man who lived and died. And there's more evidence than just an empty tomb. Though that would be sufficient in of itself, the fact of the matter is nobody knows where he was buried. I know there's some religious groups over there that say, come and see the tomb where he was, and they got a shrine built around the thing. Nobody knows. And so we can't go today and see, that's where they laid Jesus. Do you see a body in there? Now it makes for good singing. Amen. Well, I've, I went by the tomb of da-da-da. Well, the problem with that Buddha, he spread out all over the place, but I don't have time to get into it. they got like a tooth over here. Of, look it up. So you can't go to the tomb. So what is the proof of the resurrection? Peter said, we were witnesses of it. Great, what do we have? I think it's worthy of asking, why did these apostles all of a sudden become so bold in their preaching of Christ when just a couple of months earlier, they were all scared to death, forsook Him, and fled? I think we have to ask that question. I think it's worth asking, how is there no other name under heaven so offensive and divisive as Jesus Christ. Even in the military, they say, don't pray in the name of Christ. What? Are you going to tell a Muslim not to bow before Islam? Or before Muhammad and Allah? Whatever they do, Allah? Why is it Christ? Why is Christ the one that's singled out? Why is it okay to say in God we trust, but not in Christ we trust? I, I, I think when we consider the resurrection... The proof of it. These are things we need to consider. How is it that so many have been willing to make a stand for Christ and even give their life if Christ isn't alive? 
How is it that there are churches all around this world if Christ never rose again? If Jesus never rose again, His name would have just faded. That's what they were hoping to do. They were hoping to put a watch around the tomb and say, if we remember that deceiver said in three days He would rise again. And if we just keep a watch there, we can prove that He was a farce and this whole thing will just go away. Surely this will just fade away because even His followers were in disbelief after His betrayal, arrest, and murder. Now, do you really think that all of the sudden these apostles would have become emboldened to proclaim Christ just two, three months later and die for a lie? I know I wouldn't. I don't think they would either. In Acts chapter 5, you can just flip over there if you want, Gamaliel will address the council after they have apprehended the disciples, the apostles, and they decided that they wanted to kill them. Listen to what is said by Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5, verses 34 through 39. Then there stood up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space and said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Theotis, boasting himself to be somebody to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him, he also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. Now, if you'll take what Gamaliel said here, and you'll read between the lines, you can get the sense that Gamaliel is suggesting this. If Jesus is still dead, nothing's going to come of this. But if Jesus is alive, you're not going to be able to stop it. Now, why do I say that? Because just before Gamaliel says what he says, Peter has said to the council, The God of our Father raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. And it was following that statement by Peter and the apostles, Gamaliel reminds them, you know, there was a man named Theotis. He had a following, and when he died, all of his followers were scattered. And you and I know, if we didn't have their names in Acts chapter 5, we would even never know of these events. And then he goes on to say, you know, I remember there was a man named Judas. He had a following. But when he died, his followers were scattered. Therefore, in my opinion, Gamaliel's application or implication is clear. Jesus, he came on the scene, he gained a following, and if he's dead, then all the followers are going to be scattered. Nothing's going to come of this. But if Jesus is alive, like his followers are claiming, Jesus just said God had raised him, or Peter had just said God raised Jesus from the dead. 
If Jesus is alive like his followers claim, then you're not going to be able to stop this movement because their leader has resurrected and he is alive and they're going to remain unified and not scattered. And sure enough, that's what happened. And so the only logical conclusion, even based upon what a Pharisee, Gamaliel, was saying here in Acts chapter 5, is that Jesus did rise again. Jesus' followers have remained intact for nearly 2,000 years. That's amazing. No one and no nation has ever been able to stop it because Jesus is alive. It is of God. And if you want to fight against it, you're going to lose every time. What's the proof of Jesus' resurrection? What is it people can witness today and know Jesus must have risen again? It is the church of the living God. It is you and I upon this earth. We are assembled today because Jesus rose again and is alive. But there's more. At least there should be more. Peter here, he's no longer denying his Lord and Savior in public but he's now willing to make a stand for Christ. This lame man, get this now, who was once crippled and he was begging, he's now been healed by the power of Christ and that is proof that Jesus is alive. You see, Jesus performed these same miracles. And so when they say we're doing this through the power of God, it should have been a connection point in their mind to realize that's the same thing we saw Jesus of Nazareth doing. And so Jesus is the one who heals this lame man. It's the same kind of miracles He was performing while He was on earth. We'll see more of that in verse 16 next time. But how could this man be made whole by the power of Christ if Jesus was still dead? It doesn't make logical sense. And so what we can learn from this, this is where I'm going with this point, is we are to be the proof that Jesus is alive. We were that fearful one who was ashamed to make a stand just like Peter used to be. But after we experienced the risen Savior, everything changed in our life, just like it did for Peter. Listen, you may be saved, but you may not have yet truly experienced what it means to walk with a living God. It'll change your life. My point is this. If we are in Christ, Christ begins to change us from the inside out. And that is to be the proof to the world that we live in that we serve a risen Savior. We are to be different than the world. We are to make a stand for righteousness, not for morality's sake, but for Christ's name's sake. You see, we were that crippled beggar. (laughs) We were helpless. We we are the ones that Christ has changed. We are the ones who will leave all to follow Him. We are the ones who the world looks at and says, y'all are crazy. We are the ones who still gathered together during COVID when the government says, don't do it. Why? Christ is alive. When the church, the body of Christ understands that they are the proof of His resurrection, it'll change what kind of church we are. And if you will have an encounter with the risen Lord, it'll change your life too. 
I'm not saying you're going to be a pastor or a missionary, though that would be great. But your life will be lived for Christ. And you will be a witness for Christ on your job. You will stand up to your family while standing for Christ. You may not be called to full-time service as we call it, even though we're all in full-time service, but you will learn to forsake all and follow Christ. And if you will do so because you have learned that your crimes against God is what caused Christ to go to the cross in the first place, and because Jesus rose again, you have been made alive, then now all you're going to want in this life is to have your life count for Christ. I, I get a little leery about those who say that they're in Christ, and yet, where are they? Trying to make me doubt. No, I'm not. I'm just saying, there's a difference between Peter before the resurrection and after the resurrection. I believe he knew Christ on both ends of the spectrum there personally. But something changed when he came to see the resurrected Lord. And that's what's wrong with your Christianity. You have yet to experience a living God in your life. God is still just something you kind of, you know, you pay homage to. I go to church every now and then, I do this, I do that, I do that. But he's not all in all. Because Jesus rose again, you have been made alive it's that simple. Because of that, you will now serve Him because you understand who He really is. You will give Him more. You will surrender your life when you see that He is alive by faith. You're not going to cringe when the preacher says, let's talk about money. <laughs> what a faithful church, amen. That's where you say amen and act like you're innocent. You see, when we understand who Jesus is, we don't have to twist your arm to say, will you please come out on Saturday and help us hang up door hangers? When you understand that Jesus is alive and He died for your wickedness, you, you may just be motivated to come out to men's prayer. I understand things come up. Listen, I'm not saying you're the devil if you're not here. But when you get a hold that Jesus is alive, it ought to change your life. So do you know the risen Lord? Is there any evidence in your life that you know the risen Lord? Not did you get baptized. Not did you have a warm, fuzzy, emotional experience. But do you know God? Are you a witness? Or do you cower in fear when it comes time for you to make a stand for Christ? Listen, I was there once. I understand. I get it. we got to grow beyond that. If Christ is not making a difference in your life, you really do need to examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. And in closing, I just want to say that a church in action will be proof of the resurrected Lord. Why do we do what we do? Why do we give money to somebody we've never seen? Why do we give up careers? Why do we do things that we do for Christ? It's because we're proving that He's alive. That He's made a difference in our life. And so I want to ask you, are you a living proof of Christ's resurrection? Let's pray.